This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. This this episode might just be called the return of John Briggs because that's basically that's basically what it is. So John, thanks for joining me again. Happy to be here. Uh, for the few people who don't recall the last time you were on the episode or don't know who you are, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to people? Yeah. So John Briggs, um, I own an accounting firm. I'm a CPA. I've uh, written a book that's already published, Profit First for Micro Gyms, um, and then I have a new one coming out. Uh, in January called the 3.3 rule. Uh, one thing that has changed since the last time we spoke, I have like 120 team members. Oh, like wow. More than doubled. I mean, it's been massive growth over the last year. Wow. What, uh, if you can put a finger on, I suppose, a few things, what what do you think is driving that? Um, there, well, I would say there's two things that immediately come to mind. The first thing was, and if anyone's a firm owner, man, this worked for me so well. I've done it two or three. Uh, the, I came across this concept when we were like a $2 million company. And up until that point, it's like, hey, you can kind of band-aid some fixes onto things, but like, this isn't going to work if we're 10 times this size. Right. So I just said like, okay, instead of 10 times the size, what do, what would our firm look like if we're $10 million? In- well, we'd have to have a different structure. We'd have to have a layer of management. Processes need to change. Help me identify like, well, this software we're currently using is going to blow up. Um, so, in fact, there's a book uh, that recently came out by Dan Sullivan and Ben Hardy called 10x is easier than 2x. It's the same idea. Like, And I've lived it by thinking about the firm in a much larger size. So that gave me a structure to work towards. So having the structure and changing everything so that it can just expand was super helpful. And then I did add a strategic partnership last January. Um so they so like very strategic. I mean, there's equity sharing and profit sharing and things like that that uh, has definitely contributed. And it's interesting. I prior to that experience happening, I was always the guy like, nah, we got it. Things are going fine. And then sitting down and meeting in this particular case with what they had and what I had, it just made sense that both of us were going to be able to massively grow a lot quicker than if we did things on our own. And uh, certainly that is that's what happened. So having the right structure in place so that when this opportunity came along, I was able to. Interesting. So this was another accounting firm, I take it. Uh, It's actually it was a marketing firm. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Through the process, though, we have acquired a few more firms this last year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that. Do you think that the acquisition of accounting firms is going to continue? I, I think I hear sort of mi- mixed messages in that industry. So I'm curious on your thoughts. Yeah. So I've now done four acquisitions. Um, I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> the The main reasons I was doing it to begin with was I needed people. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had found some companies that had some capacity, had some inefficiencies in their processes. So, hey, we can come in. We can make the work they're currently doing more efficient, which would then allow us to have their capacity as well. Um, 
I might just not be patient enough, even though I'm a CPA and accountant or the desire for all the level of detail needed to do a proper due diligence. Um, I, and I just apparently take people at their word too much, even though there's contracts, unfortunately, once the contract's breached or whatever, then you have to make the decision, do I even go to, into a lawsuit or not? Because that's a whole other bag of worms. And uh, I just, peep. What I was sold on some of these firms definitely didn't exist. We got into all the nitty gritty details, mm -hmm. like one being, hey, the data this guy provided me wasn't accurate. And there's no way for me to have known that until I got into his real system and like was able to dig in and realize you guys aren't booking time to the right clients. So, like what the profitability you thought that existed on this client over here for the bookkeeping and CFO work. Yeah, no, actually we were losing money. So I ended up having to raise prices on people after a switch, which is always difficult. Yeah. They're already upset about the switch and now I'm going to raise prices. Um, so it, yeah, I'd prefer to grow not through acquisition because then you also have the cultural challenge. And for us, we're pretty darn different than most EPA firms. We call ourselves professionally unprofessional, a little like irreverent attitude. We don't wear shirts and ties or suits to work, you know? Um, and uh, there's a certain way we, wanted we want to talk to clients as humans as opposed to using the jargon that a lot of accounting firms for example you I, I mean so anyways yeah I, i'd rather not grow by acquisition this last one that i did and as a way to basically help my new partner out i i tried to push it off as long as i could i'm like i really look i don't think we need this just we got a good thing going we don't need to bring over this other firm and we brought them over anyways you violated your own rule, John. <laughs> you, 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 you established the rule, then you violated it. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I think that's probably true. All of those things are probably true. I think it's certainly difficult in my industry, in the, the legal industry, for firms to merge. It can be a really hard transition. And as you say, all of those cultural issues arise, the skeletons in the closet come to light, the truth in the actual record keeping and in the files comes to light. And all of a sudden, the deal that sounded very sweet isn't quite as sweet anymore. Plus, yeah, you almost say it's sour. <laughs> yeah. And plus, in the legal industry, at least there, there aren't non-competes. And so people can move freely. So you could actually have a merger and just have people jump ship and you have no way of tying them down. You can't, in fact, and right. as far as I'm aware, uh, in every state, if not almost every state, it's literally illegal to try to do that within the legal industry among lawyers. So you see this very big churn and change. And every time you see one of these mergers happen, there's almost always huge disruption within the firm and like the content of the attorneys, especially if it's firms of substantial size. So not easy, yeah. not no, easy. It's, it's not easy. Um, and that's why, so we do have like non-solicitation clauses, right? So it's like, okay, then go compete, but those only do so much. Uh, cause it just means they, they themselves can't go out and ask, but the clients have the relationship, right? If they ask, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. We have the same challenge with the CPA industry as well. Um, but like, if people think about it, see, it's like, if I hire someone brand new, for sure, they have experience, especially if it's an experience position, right? They have experience at a previous firm. So they've learned that culture, they've learned those processes, and they come in, but they're coming in with a the mindset because they wanted, they wanted to leave that other. 
And so there's much more open-mindedness. And what we found with acquisitions is, you know, these team members feel betrayed by the previous owner because like, I didn't ask for this. I don't, is this really a better company for me? Even though, I mean, in the deals I've been, I've dealt with, the seller was very conscious. Like, I want to make sure I'm leaving my team position. They don't get credit for that, but it's different mindset. They come in and now it's like, well, you're forcing this on me. And we've had a hard time getting the acquired team members to adjust to our processes so much slower than like a new hire who's open to the training. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Cause it's not their deal when you're, yeah. when you're buying, it's not the staff's deal. It's the owner's deal. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I find similar issues for me yeah. in, in acquiring and retaining and training staff. I have historically hired people who are fresh out of school and with the understanding that it will take probably some number of years to fully train them up. But yeah. if I can do that and fully train them up in some number of years, assuming they don't get poached off by another firm, which does happen, um, they'll be able to do things, of course, the right way, which of course is my way. And right. I don't have to, I don't have to break them of habits that they've learned somewhere else. Totally. But that's not to say that people don't learn good habits somewhere else too, because that certainly happens. But it's a it it's a never-ending challenge, I'd say. <laughs> it can happen, yes. It can yeah, I say. I mean, at this point, over the course of my career, I think we've hired two, I've 200, 250 people. Um, definitely more often, it's the bad habits we're trying to break that shine, if you will, with a new hire. Versus, wow, we didn't have to teach you that. You just already knew how to. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a surprising little uh, Easter yeah. egg hunt sometimes. That's right. So tell me about the new book. You teased that a bit. So that comes out in January, which makes sense because when I looked it up on Amazon, it said it had uh, zero pages to it. I'm assuming that's not going to be the case come January. Yeah, there's a, there's a good 200 some odd pages to that. Um, so it's called the 3.3 rule, a new workday structure to get more done by working less. Um, I'll start it off with this. Here's a little is, I don't know, analogy or what's the right word for it's a little story. So there's a girl um they're at a family gathering and she's in the kitchen helping her mom make a pot roast and the mom cuts off the end of the pot roast sticks it in the oven and the little girl curious like all girls at this age or kids really the, the never-ending question age hey mom why'd you cut off the ends of the pot roast uh and she stops like you know i don't know that's how my mom taught me well grandma's there so the daughter the granddaughter goes and asks the grandma how come you taught my mom to cut off the ends of the pot roast? What's going on there? And she stops and says, you know, I'm not sure. My mom taught. So great grandma Gertrude's out on uh, the porch in the rocking chair away from the, of the family gathering. And here comes the girl and say, hey, Gert, grandma Gertrude, like, uh, why did you teach all of your ancestors or all your progeny um, to cut off the, she needs the word progeny, she's a little girl, but why did you cut off the ends of the pot roast? Is it a secret family recipe or something? You know, like what's going on? And Grandma Gertrude, without hesitation, says, "My pot roast pan was." <laughs> so like something that's not relevant to actually what's going on with the pot roast gets passed down from generation to generation, maybe misunderstood by the daughter, and then just gets perpetuated. So sometimes we pass down behaviors from generation to generation without stopping to think why that behavior in the first place. Now think about that in context of the 40-hour work week and the eight-hour work day. Uh, back in the 1900s, the average work day was 80 to 100 hours. It's very manufacturing-driven. Let's keep these machines going all the time. 
And so we need people there to make sure that parts are lubricated and nothing breaks down. Well, come into the 1920s and Henry Ford, um, not the first one, but he made the biggest dent in this becoming something that people are like, oh, hold on a second. Villainized at the time, but he said, you know what? I'm actually, not only am I going to give them two days off during the, he created the weekend as we, he also said, I'm capping their days at eight hours. And people are like, hold on, we're, we're going to go from 80 hours to 100 hours to 40 hours. You can't do that. And now you're going to, all these other people are going to want to work for you and all this stuff. Um, it actually took, like that was the introduction of it, but it took a little bit before it to become law. Uh, we got overtime laws happened and things like that. But it begs the question, why would Henry Ford, other than human behavior, right? I'm sure people are miserable. You're working 80 to 100 hours a week. You're done. You don't want to do it. What does Henry Ford sell? He sells a automobile, right? Well, man, when people are working so many hours and they have a little bit of their life off, they don't want to go anywhere. They're exhausted, which means they don't need his car. And so he's like, how do I sell more cars? I need to give people more leisure time. I, they need to come into the weekend with energy wanting to do things. And here we are. So arguably, we are still 100 years later working eight hours a day, five days a week, Monday through Friday, 40-hour work week, because smartly, Henry Ford decided to sell more. And this was the easiest way for him to do uh, Work has obviously changed over the years from laborer, blue collar stuff to the knowledge worker aid. Um, why have we not shifted? There was no science that backed the current way we do things. Um, but there's been a lot of science in the last hundred years that gives us a better way, which is how I came up. So what does it mean there? What is 3.3 digging yeah. at? Okay, so a couple things. Um, there is a study by Voucher Cloud, a UK company, and they surveyed people, 2000. Uh, of their employees. And they found that on average, uh, their employees were actually doing two hours and 53 minutes of actual productivity workday. That means the other five hours, not productive, but they're there, they're getting paid. Um, and so first you kind of look at them like there's no, I actually, so in our firm, we track that um, a couple times a year specifically like, hey, here's the week we're tracking. And our team is more productive. They actually, they're working more than the two hours and 53 minutes, but stands to reason are they actually getting good work done. So you have that study. Um, I won't go in all the science because there's a, enough of it, but the big foundational one, there's a um, professor out of the University of Illinois Champaign. The name was Alejandro Yedis. And he was looking at this statement that scientists have made that said, hey, your attention span is, he said, why are people doing, I don't, I don't understand why people are doing studies on it. He says, I don't think they're actually limited. You're always paying attention to something. You just might not be focused on the to be focused. So that attention span is unlimited. It's you're awake, you have it, your attention span is being right. used. So he's like, okay, so he has that kind of festering in him. And then he looks at the study about physical sensation. Uh, if your body has a physical stimulant, it will eventually neutralize that. So the clothes that we put on today, now that I'm going to talk about the clothes, most of us listening are going to be like, oh, wait, I feel the weight of the clothes down. I'm going to wiggle a little bit and feel it. But until that very moment, your brain had neutralized that you technically had clothes. There's studies that even show if you stare at an image long enough, it will disappear from your view, even though it's still there. So physical stimulus, a physical constant stimulus, your brain neutralizes. He wondered if the same thing is possible with our mental focus. And so he did a study and sure enough found out that constant stimulus to our mind will neutralize whatever the sense it is. So in, in this context, we're thinking about work. If I'm doing the same thing 
for a period of time, at some point, my brain's going to get bored with. In fact, the Princeton uh, Neuroscience Institute has done a study that shows naturally our brain cycles from a state of focus to a state of distractibility. So it's a natural cycle, which means we're not going to be able to fight it. So instead of fighting it, we should maybe come up with a different approach, which is where the three um, the secret is breaks. So the rule states the most efficient workday is to work up to three hours at a time, followed by a 30% recovery. And it's up to three hours because for some people, they can't focus. And whether maybe I can focus for me personally, I could focus three hours on Excel files and doing forecasting. I love that stuff. But I'm actually not an author. So sitting down and writing for three hours straight was impossible. So even based on the task, right? Some may have the ability to do one task for three hours. So that's why it's up to three hours. And it's a, why it's 30%. The three represents up to three hours. The three represents the recovery. But as an example, if I worked for an hour after that hour, if like, I'm like, I can tell I've lost focus. I need to take it. If I work three hours, I should take an hour. Um, and so that's, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Very interesting. Pretty consistent with, uh, Things that people who I view as highly productive people will say anecdotally, and most highly productive people that I know or listen to talk about, in, in some sense, batching work, scheduling specific time to do the work, and then that forces you to to do the work in that time. Uh, Morgan Household, for example, who I think is probably one of the most prolific and successful financial planning authors uh, that we've got right now living, certainly of my vintage, um, he's always saying that he takes walks. He's a big proponent of taking walks. So that's his break, I guess, is to mm -hmm. step away, take a walk. Uh, Cal Newport's the same way. He says the same thing. Yep. They both apparently are huge walkers. They must live in nice places to walk. Here in Arizona <laughs> in the middle of the summer, that's not a wise idea. But, you know, for them, I'm yeah. sure it's great wherever yeah. they live. And Utah but, in the wintertime also. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, anyways, it's it's interesting because you're you're citing these these studies which, which appear to support some of the anecdotes yeah. that you hear. And you brought up Cal Newport. I actually feel like the 3.3 rule just picks up where his book left off. I think one of the challenges of his book, which I love, is called Deep Work is that not everybody's job responsibilities allow you to actually have uninterrupted. Uh, like your receptionist, for example, that's never going to happen. So you just ask her like, hey, sorry, you're, I think he calls it frenetic and shallow work. Um, some like, and even in my job description, there's things that I need to do that are considered that. It, I don't need to go deep. I just have to get it done. Um, so the 3.3 will kind of just takes it to the next level, which is it doesn't matter if, you can sit down and program, like, because his a lot of his um, IT technology, um, even tax returns, you could probably deep dive deep into those, financial planning and uh, legal. I'm sure if, if you have to <laughs> dig into legal documents, like that would require deep work. But mm -hmm. answering clients, that, that's not really deep work, but it's got to get done. Well, so am I now screwed because I can't do deep work? No, you still follow the rule, like take a break. Um, one of the guys I introduced this concept to in the beginning, he actually called me up. He's like, hey, I wanted to thank you. I've lost 20 pounds. I'm like, I don't understand why you're telling me this. What what does your diet and fitness have to do with any conversation we've ever had in the past? <laughs> He's like, the 3.3 rule. I'm like, what? You lost weight because of the 3.3 rule? It's like, yeah. I. He's like, he decided what works for him is three hours at a time. So he goes nine to 12. And then the rule 
like gave him a mental permission he wasn't giving him for. He always had felt guilty not working because there's always work to do. But he's like, I like just really wanted to try the rule out. So between noon and one, he'll eat a little bit of lunch and then he walks for two miles. He's like, and it's great. I clear my head. Uh, he walks with his dog. Like there's no work being done. And then he comes back completely rejuvenated and refreshed where normally most of us, if we're not doing this, man, for me, two, three o'clock, if I didn't take a proper break, I'm pretty fatigued, right? Uh, he's like, I don't have that anymore. Like I have two solid three hour chunks of so six hours a day I'm working. And because I can walk two miles a day in between, which I wasn't doing before, I've lost 20 pounds. Like that's, that's great. It was, that's unintended consequence of the rule. I just wanted people to be more productive, uh, but that's awesome. <laughs> So how how do you use the rule uh, practically? Do you block off time on your calendar? I do. Um, so what I have is two half hour blocks set up on my calendar. So then as I look at how my day's unfolding, I might need to put those two blocks together mm -hmm. or I might spread them out. Um, and I have definitely found, like, because life happens and I wish I could say I can, I'm 100% monitoring the 3.3 rule. But man, I can tell you when I get to, especially the afternoon appointments and I have to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with somebody and I didn't take a proper break prior to that during the day, it those meetings are hard for me because I know I'm not giving them my best. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I do block out time. I've set them as recurring schedules so I can just move them around on my- Smart. I think you have to do stuff like that. You kind of have to come up with arbitrary rules. Understanding like you're saying life will happen. It yeah. won't always happen every time, but it will happen more times than not if you do it than if you don't try to impose that rule at all. Yeah. I know that's certainly true for me. If I if I have a rule like that, uh, that I'm trying to impose upon myself, if I don't actually physically do something to try to impose it, and for me, it's almost always my calendar because I just, I'll do whatever my calendar says. So if I, if I don't, <laughs> It's like I have I don't have a brain of my own. I'm just like, oh, the calendar says go there. OK, I'll go there. And I have shown up in locations where there was nothing happening. I wasn't supposed to be there. I just went because it was on my calendar. Um, that's fine. The error rate <laughs> is acceptable. Yeah. But I know for myself, if I don't if I don't physically put it in there, uh, too many things will elbow it out of the way. Even if I put it on there, things can elbow it out of the way. But my success rate jumps up, up substantially when I take that step, that proactive yeah. step. And when you do take those steps, because uh, one thing I've loved about this is it gives my team permission. There's an element of like, man, I got to sit here for eight hours. We know they're not being productive. Studies have shown that. But now that they have permission to do absolutely nothing during parts of the day, it's completely unstructured where we don't want them doing any sort of work. Anything that stimulates the mind, at a high level, like uh, even like TikTok videos and YouTube and Netflix and those types of things, uh, especially those like uh, game apps, like Candy Crush and things like that, those are terrible things to do on the break. It's gotta be something that actually calms the mind down. Uh, but by being able to do that, they are getting more work done because they know they have time later to just do whatever they want. And, and so by doing that, they now see success in taking that time, which then makes them more inclined to honor this time that break shows up on their. So it's like success precedes motivation, right? As I keep living this, like I, I'm more inclined, I become addicted to the ability to just have unstructured time throughout the day. Uh, so it, 
it does allow you to have less of those moments of life where you have to go over the break. Right. How long have you been doing it? And then how long have you, if if you have been sort of implementing it as a standard within your business? So I've been doing this unknowingly for about four years. And then two years ago when I started writing the book, uh, it's when I was able to like solidify it into 3.3 formula idea. Mm-hmm. Like, huh, all right. And I could look back and see evidence. Um, as far as implementing in our firm, we've really tried hard this last year to get people doing it. So uh, it, it's been good. I mean, because initially they had apprehension, like, hold on. In fact, their first, the first time I introduced it, everyone's like, so I got a clock out on purpose now? It's like, no, no, I'm not asking. You. You're going to get paid eight hours, for, even though mathematically you'd only have six hours. Um, that, that, so like they definitely came to it from a standpoint of, you're trying to screw me out of money. Once they realized I wasn't, uh, their productivity increased as they continue. I mean, it obviously hasn't prevented the firm from growing. No, right. So, right. so, so I noticed. <laughs> yeah, totally. Profitability has increased. Um, yeah, again, they're more productive because without it, you can probably safely assume you're getting the two hours and minutes of work a day out of your. Mm-hmm. This way, they have permission to go get a complete reset, and you're likely going to get that uh, another block of two hours and. Right. Yeah. And, and in the end, that's what you want. That's what you're trying to do is deliver good, productive things for your clients. The things that they pay for should be good. And it depends on the human doing it. Yeah. And then it's you hire employees too. you like you have to look at it from a profitability standpoint. Um, in the book, I talk about the forms Ramsey extremes. There was an article in Forbes where the guy says, hey, we know it's all about shareholder value. That's the game we all have to play that we accept, meaning profit at all costs. And then Dave Ramsey on his radio show was interviewed about a cash flow management system called Profit First. And without knowing anything about it, he said, that's stupid. You can't take profit first. It has to be people. And I call it the extremes because both extremes are really irresponsible. And it, I, the sweet spot in the middle of the 3.3 zone is where you are taking care of your people, giving them breaks, helps with their mental health helps with their ability to focus, avoid burnout while looking at profitability because you need profit to actually take care of the people that you want to have working for you. So I I like the rule a lot because I feel like it marries a responsible approach to, I got to be profitable. You need to be an investment for the firm, but I'm also not going to treat you like a disposable asset. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, in, in the end, it is humans and you have to take care of the human. And as you say, all all of our professional businesses, they are cash flowing business. And so you also have to take care of cash flow at the same time. So the two yeah. things have to go hand in hand. You can't ignore one in favor of the other. Totally. Well, uh, John, very interesting. Well, in January, when the book comes out, uh, people will be able to get it. I'll try to put a, a link to the page on Amazon, at least, where they can find it. So once it uh, once it hits, they can get their hands on it. Sounds very interesting. Sounds like you've done a lot of due diligence to put it together. So I'm interested in getting my hands on it myself. If people are trying to reach you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can email me at john at 33rule.com. Um, sorry, the33rule.com. Uh, or they can check out our uh, tax firm, insighttax.com. Um, those are the best ways. And yeah, if they want to pre-order, pre-orders are great way out Amazon's algorithm. That way I can send them more to make sure they have stock. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Date. 
Yeah, sorry, I, I, I shouldn't have made that sound like people can't pre-order. You definitely can pre-order. It is available. I have checked. So uh, thank you, John, as usual. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.